Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Thronderdome. Um, now, Ronnie, we run a pretty tight ship. We have a very established uh, sequence of the way we do things. We have a very structured and ordered show, much like our own structured and ordered minds. But we're going to break away from that for today, in part because, of course, we're on season break. We're in between novels in Timothy Zahn's masterful, magisterial, magnificent Thrawn trilogy. Uh, so that gives us a chance to kind of stretch our legs, kind of do something eh, do something a little different. And what I wanted to do with this episode was go back to, of course, uh, astute listeners will remember that we didn't start using the 20th anniversary Heir to the Empire author notes until uh, the fourth episode of the podcast, the, the, the third of the normal recap episodes. Which means there is a lot of meat left on the bone, especially considering that Timothy was a lot more chatty <laughs> with the first few chapters of the book. So what we're doing today is uh, we are going to be going back and kind of reading through some of those notes in those parts of the book where we didn't have them available. And uh, Ronnie is here to respond and react to them because this is all this is all fresh to you. Because uh, if you re- if you recall, Ronnie, of course, I was the master and holder of the notes. So these are some that uh, I'm really looking forward to your to your reactions to. Uh, how how are you feeling about this, man? I'm ready. My my body's ready. <laughs> Prepared to receive TZ and BM the lost levels and uh, and all all y'all out there in listener land. There's some some pretty juicy stuff in here. So we're gonna kind of mostly go just kind of sequentially, um, you know, chapter one, chapter two, uh, I think really for the original, the first run that we got up through chapter eight was when we started actually reading the notes. So, so we got a few, you know, a little bit to go through here, but mostly we're staying kind of breezy. Uh, we're more just kind of, I don't know, like, uh, like we're imagine Ronnie and listeners, if you will, that we are lazily rowing down a, a tranquil stream and just sort of letting our hand dip into the water and feel it flow by. We're letting the Zahnism wash over us with this one. So join me, won't you? And let's take a dip. <laughs> here we are. I'm going to try to get get rid of this NPR cadence I've got going here. That's terrible. Uh, so here we are with chapter one. There's a few. There's a lot of stuff that we actually kind of reasoned out for ourselves as we talked about it. Um and especially, I think, running with, like, our recap when we were talking about the character Thrawn, and we talked about the reasons why he was different from, like, uh, Palpatine or Vader and everything. Timothy Zahn actually is pretty pretty explicit about that in a lot of these notes, but that's also ground that we covered, so I'm not exactly super interested in that. But just know, just confirmation, Ronnie, that we had our finger on the pulse. We, we got a bullseye with a lot of this stuff. Good to uh, know. But... Yes, see, we, see, that lets us know we're, we're good and attentive readers. We can actually, we have actually pulled a Thrawn on Timothy Zahn. We discovered him, we saw through him, through his art. Um, but speaking of Grand Admiral Thrawn, uh, th- that was kind of the first note I wanted to start with here, from, from chapter one. Uh, and Timothy says here, I wanted Heir's villain to be a military leader, as opposed to a governor, moth, or Sith. Sorry, excuse me, moth or Sith, but a normal admiral seemed too commonplace, hence the Grand Admirals. 
I first ran across the title, by the way, in connection with the German Navy in William R. Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. So how's that for a, a little a name drop? Ooh, I read, the, I read the big book with a big swastika on it. Look at me. Timothy Zahn admitting that he reads real books. <laughs> he should be ashamed to show his face at a science fiction convention ever again. Uh... <laughs> I, I do like that there's like actual historical precedent for the title Grand Admiral. Like, I guess, like, I don't know, because like an admiral as a rank is like the officer in charge of a fleet of ships. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, I'm not a Navy man. I'm sure there's all kinds of gradations and whatnot. But I thought they had like stars and stuff. But I guess the Germans, you know, especially the Nazis with their uh, obsession with, you know, Hugo Boss uniforms and uh, and clicking your heels and all that. They wanted something a little more a little more uh, grandiose sounding. So I'm not entirely yeah. sure that you need historical precedent for a title that you use in your Spaceman novel. <laughs> well, maybe not precedent, but inspiration. We'll call it inspiration rather than precedent. Yeah. Um, but coming up next is one. This is okay. This is the big, this is the big one that I was really looking forward to. So I'm, I'm ready for Ronnie to just, utterly crush me with how little of a reaction he has but trust me this is absolutely insane um so this is around the uh the introduction of rook the uh the nogri you know thron's little uh little uh bodyguard compatriot originally i had rook and his fellows being called sith keying off of darth vader's title lord of the sith since at that point the term hadn't been defined i figured i was safe but Lucasfilm was concerned that George would want to use the Sith at some future date, which, as we all know, he did, and told me to pick some other term for them. I fumed about that for a while. But, of course, I'm very grateful now that they ordered me to make the change. So the Nogri have their origin in the toss-off line of Darth Vader being referred to as Lord of the Sith at some point, and since no one knew what that was, Tim just thought, well, sure, I'll just make a little race of guys that he's their Lord, and I'll call them the Sith. That's being, so, like, yeah. overly literal. Like, <laughs> just a just a descriptor, descriptor of a character being Lord of the Sith, and it's like, yeah, I'll invent these little gray guys and, and have him be literally their Lord. <laughs> And I was realized I was listening back to some other um, some other episodes just to just kind of get it to get an idea of like where we actually dropped off in the notes and where we picked up and all that. But I, I, I did listen to an episode where I I mistakenly recalled that I thought it was a coincidence that Zahn had come up with the word Sith to describe these beings. But actually, he was keying off of something. And I'm not even sure where that shows up in the movies. Ronnie, do you know? I've seen reference to Empire Strikes Back, but I don't remember him being called Lord of the Sith anywhere. Well, I'm not a Star Wars novelist, so I haven't memorized every single line of dialogue from <laughs> the original Star Wars movies. So it, I'll just take it as on faith that Lord of the Sith is in there somewhere. That's a, that's a good point. Maybe it was on a uh, it was on like a, a a trading card you got with a pack of bubble gum in 1978. So, it counts. But like I just want to I just want to imagine like a, a counter history in which Zahn won this battle, and instead of like Sith being a term for evil Jedi, 
It's just the name of a race of little gray jerks. Yeah, and then they have to use Dark Jedi for uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Dark Jedi. <laughs> that would be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I think Sith is a much better term than Dark Jedi. Uh, for sure, for real, for sure. Um, but here's where it gets really good. All right. And here's here's uh, another note on this one. This one actually comes before that last one, but I wanted to read that other one about Lord of the Sith and all that before I read this one. With none of Vader's backstory available at the time, and having just invented the Nogri species for this story, I came up with the idea that Vader might have designed his mask to look like a stylized version of a Nogri face, the better to facilitate his commands of the Death Commando squads. At the time, of course, I didn't know that it would be revealed in ROTS that Palpatine had provided the mask. I wasn't allowed to explicitly make the mask Nogri connection in air, but I thought I might be permitted to do so later in the trilogy, so I went ahead and designed the aliens' faces with that resemblance in mind. Of course, we know now that the mask, which had originally been based on Ralph McQuarrie's pre-production drawings, was provided by Palpatine based on his own twisted evil Sith specs and had nothing whatsoever to do with the Nogri. Just as well that Lucasfilm Limited hadn't let me run with this one. Yet another instance where their caution about letting my imagination stray too far saved me from future embarrassment. TZ. Oh yeah, future embarrassment. Get real flamed <laughs> in the uh, Wikipedia... Uh, edit history. <laughs> you just would they would have roasted his ass. So, th- so now we finally understand what he's trying to say when he says protruding jaw and and big googly eyes. He's trying to say that they look like Darth Vader. That's absolutely I would insane. have accepted him <laughs> just having a line of dialogue. It's like the Nogri look a lot like uh, Darth Vader's mask. Right. I mean, instead of telling us that they have a protruding jaw with needle teeth 50 times... In fact, you can like, even get away with, like, Luke or, or Han saying, like, Hey, those guys look a lot like Darth Vader's mask. <laughs> right. Like, and, 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 well, and you think they would have noticed that. Like, if there was... Like, it's one thing to have this kind of connection in mind, and it didn't pan out in the backstory or whatever... But, like, you don't keep the design of your aliens then. You you have to do something different. Because everyone else in the universe is going to, like, you know, Luke is going to look at those guys and say, whoa, that looks a fuckload like Darth Vader's mask. Absolutely insane that he's stuck with that description of them. I don't know if he was just, like, too deep in or he had become really attached. Also, I'm going to reverse my position uh, from the first... Uh... Sith uh, change, and I'm going to say that I prefer Zahn's version over what ultimately happened in Star Wars, because it makes a lot more sense for me to have Darth Vader make his mask look like a a bunch of gray jerks that he can uh, command, as opposed to Emperor Palpatine, apropos of nothing, going like, yeah, I think this mask design is pretty cool. (laughs) This racing stripe, I feel, is pretty sharp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're right. This is the one that really blew me away because, like, what we're what we're looking at. I like the aside where he says, "Oh, it had originally been based on Ralph McQuarrie's pre-production drawings." Yeah, no shit, stupid. Everything in Star Wars was like, uh, of course, of course, but, but this is just such a wonderful like causal chain where 
there's a particular design for the mask and then some years later timothy zong comes around and concocts this whole backstory about darth vader which then retcons his mask into being designed after these little dudes that he has designed their faces after the mask that was already designed for the movie also can i just say my my mental picture of the nelgri now is hilarious <laughs> they're just these little goofballs with Darth Vader faces. <laughs> little goofballs with Darth. Do you think they have like the little flared helmet on the back? You know, is like is that is that what their hair looks like? Does it look like a helmet hairdo? I mean, that's just amazing. Oh, and speaking of the Nogri, um, you mentioned their gray skin. I just here's a here's a great little tidbit. My original idea was that Nogri skin started out a pale gray in childhood and gradually darkened to black as the Nogri grew into adulthood. But there were concerns about possible racial questions, even though the Nogri were eminently honorable and would eventually become New Republic allies, so I changed the skin to gray. This kind of reminds me of Darth Maul and how, like, I guess the supposition is that there's a whole race of guys that look like that. I mean, there would have to be, right? Yeah. Or maybe he's just like the one new metal guy on his planet and he got the, you know, the implant. He's like the juggalo of whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so there you go, Ronnie. We, we could have, you know, again, missed opportunities with the Nogri. They, they could have been a, uh, a terrible allegory for, uh, certain, uh, racial prejudices, uh, in, uh, in 20th and 21st century North America. So instead they're just gray jerks who kind of have a face that look like Darth Vader's mask. That's ridiculous. Yep. 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 Also, it just makes me imagine like, what if Darth Vader made his mask look various other races in order to command them? Yeah. Well, he, well, if he had like ways he could like swap it out. Yeah. He like, he has like a different mask for every occasion. So there would be a version of a Darth Vader mask that looks like, like humans for when he's bossing around, uh, empire guys. God, that would be terrifying. Just like That'd a, be pretty cool. yeah. a plastic human face. Like a, like a mannequin almost. See, now that's cool. I don't know. Maybe like that could a, be so a blow up doll. <laughs> <laughs> just instead, instead of the, uh, the faceplate grill, it's just a big hole. It's the, <laughs> it's the hole with the little pocket. Oh God. Um, Wow, that's an image I don't like having in my brain. Thanks, Ronnie. I mean, hey, there's absolutely a Darth Vader blow-up doll in existence somewhere. <laughs> I mean, so, come on, that's, that's not even a question. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, let's see here. Uh, my next selection, uh, this one I thought was very funny, and it ties in to another well-known uh, maestro of the fantastical arts. Heir to the Empire wasn't my original title for the book, but was suggested by Lou Aronica at Bantam. My choices were Wild Card, which was vetoed because Bantam was also doing the Wild Cards superhero anthology series, and Warlord's Gambit. Though we ultimately went with Heir, there are still bits of setup, such as here, for that other title. Wild Card would be such a bad title. Such a bad title! Like, would you have still named Talon Card's ship the Wild Card if the novel was called Wild Card? That's yeah, I don't nuts. know. And, it's and like Warlord's Warlord's Gambit is also like that's there's nothing Star Wars about that. There's just nothing Star Wars about it. 
at least heir to the empire tells you exactly what it is it's a guy who's an heir to the empire yeah i would i would go so far as to say that lou aranaika at bantam saved timothy zahn's bacon with this one because despite all of the you know despite all of our uh coming around to appreciating the quality that tz did bring to all this um if this book was called wild card i uh uh-uh, there's no way it would have hit big no one would know what it was talking about uh but also, one thing who I the hell would be the wild card the titular wild card would it be talent card or would it be thrawn hey here's 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 the big they're all wild cards huh yeah. It's like having a deck full of jokers. It's too much. <laughs> he should have called this book Deck Full of Jokers, <laughs> Star Wars Episode 7. Uh, <laughs> so, but one thing I wanted to point out, so in this aside where it says it was vetoed because Bantam was also publishing a superhero anthology series called Wild Cards. Have you heard of this before, Ronnie? Do you know about this? Yeah, I'm vaguely familiar with it. Uh, did you know that it is uh, spearheaded and uh, sort of shepherded and under the protection of George R.R. R. Martin? All I remember about Wild Cards is that uh, part of the counterfactual was Fidel Castro becoming a baseball player for, I think, the <laughs> New York Giants. That's kind of fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that would have dire consequences for the the people of Cuba. I guess as to how their twentieth century would have gone. Perhaps they perhaps it would still be a land of slave plantations and casinos. Who can say where we can go on? Well, vacation. that fucking Lego Movie guy would prefer that. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I just thought that was really funny that there's a uh, that George Railroad Martin not only has his interest in wild cards. Uh, made sure that Winds of Winter will never ever see the light of day because he's still cranking out wild card stuff. But it also uh, pissed in Timothy Zahn's Cheerios in 1990 when he wanted to to have his title. That's just terrific. Another fun thing about Wild Cards is that it began life as a tabletop superhero RPG game group that George Railroad Martin uh, game mastered in Santa Fe in the 1980s. And Did you know that George R.R. R. Martin used to write uh letters to marvel comics i did not but i really believe it <laughs> i mean he was published in like some issues of avengers wow so he so he got into the bullpen he was there he was he had stan lee say enough said after his letter and stuff right yeah he probably got a no prize oh he got the no prize man george R. R. martin there's there's someone we might no we'll never take a look at him uh, anyway so that that was that one was I mean, has he written any uh, star wars tie-in novels i don't know i he feels like the kind of guy who would have been brought in to do a, a uh like a, a tales from you know a, a tales from jabba's basement kind of thing you know where he does like a little short story but i don't know for sure um, are you saying that because he looks like jabba the hutt no i'm not i don't think he looks like jabba the hutt he wears a little hat it's very different. Yeah, he wears a stupid <laughs> totally hat like look. you do. He wears a stupid little hat much like I do. Um, but moving on from George Railroad Martin. Uh, here is here here an aside where I thought this was very funny. Because, um, you know, we were complaining about how we don't know what an assault frigate or a dreadnought looks like. Because Zahn never describes them. Well, here we, here we have something that's going to help us out, Ronnie. Here, here we go. Here, t- here, here we go, Ronnie. Here in the annotations 20 years after... It was published. Here's a little help. Assault frigates were modified dreadnoughts, a little more than a third the size of a Star Destroyer. They were older ships, Clone Wars era, but still packed a hefty punch, 
Both Assault Frigates and Dreadnoughts came by way of West End Games and their Star Wars role-playing game source books. So I have to read a fucking source book to figure this shit out. If you want to know, if you want to know what two types of starships, which are referenced multiple times in the novel, actually look like, you're gonna go have to buy an RPG source book. I'm sorry, I just there's just no way to actually. Why don't tell you tell you. me to look up some fucking microfiche to find out what Chewbacca looks like? <laughs> it's just like, dude, you spit. You just you just now twenty years later wrote what five three sentences about these things that you know you could have used three sentences to say that they oh they were cylinder shaped with uh with you know protuberances and a little more than a third the size of a star destroyer or something something also correct me if i'm wrong but source books include words right they do. I am certain so that I would source suggest books would that he would just take the description <laughs> from the source book and use it in his book. Uh, but then again, but then again, he wouldn't have let the audience have that that uh, that wonderful experience of just like letting their imagination run wild, trying to fill in these gaps. Because Speaking of Marvel we, Comics, we he should else. have had like an asterisk at the end of the sentence and at the bottom telling us to buy the source book. <laughs> absolutely enough said uh here we have our first note from betsy she has a note right at the uh in the in the first chapter where uh she says one reason we proposed tim to lucasfilm as the author of the new star wars trilogy was his background in writing military science fiction his previous novels including the cobra series and black collar were excellent examples of the craft and she actually mentioned that in her afterward so that's not new information but i did want to go ahead and point it and show show you here that uh, bm had been contributing notes from chapter one for whatever reason where, wherever we picked up in the annotations it was a long time before we got to a bm note and so that's when we were shocked and appalled that someone else was writing notes here. Um, let's see. They have a couple more that I wanted to, from this first chapter, that I thought were, were valuable. Uh, ah, here we are. <laughs> it says here, I'm often asked where the whole art as tactical insight idea came from. Sadly, I have no particular epiphany or historical reference I can point to. It's just something that popped into my mind during the Thrawn development process. He was eating Thanks. chicken wings at Sizzler in Tampa. <laughs> That's right. He was, he was going back for his second helping of uh, salad, which is what he calls it when he puts a bunch of shredded cheese and ranch on a plate at the Sizzler. And, uh, and it just came to him right as he passed by the, uh, the soft serve ice cream machine. <laughs> but I would argue that Zon is actually pretty prescient because now all you see on social media is people judging uh, other people based on their media consumption. That's a good point. Uh, little did he know that a little a thousand little throngs would be spawned uh, in his wake. Um, and we have a pretty extensive note here, kind of a little more about the creative process behind Grand Admiral Thrawn. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked is how I came up with the idea and person of Grand Admiral Thrawn. The Star Wars movies revolved around villains who led by coercion and fear. That may work for short-range operation. Vader's crew certainly put their hearts into their work. But it's not so good for long-range or long-term. So I decided to do something different to try to create a commander who would lead by loyalty. 
what qualities does such a commander have to have? The first, obviously, is strategic and tactical skill. His troops must believe that any operation they're going, to, going into has a good chance of success, with as few casualties on their side as possible. Uh, there will be many other examples of Thrawn's tactical skill throughout the book, but here's the first. He defeats an entire New Republic task force without, apparently, ever even bothering to leave his meditation room. Uh, but that kind of, I think that, that, that comports with our kind of estimation of what Thrawn was doing with the character. Uh, that he was, he was zagging uh, after, after Vader had zigged. So, once again, confirmation that we know Timothy Zahn even better than he knows himself. I'm just glad he didn't uh, go with his original name for Thrawn, which was Bizarro Vader. <laughs> his, his original name for Thrawn, Wild Zahn. He, uh, he decided not to go with that one. <laughs> so on to Chapter 2, which, of course, our uh, loyal listeners will remember is the introduction of the Lunchbox guys. Uh, it's the one where Luke has a bunch of feelings late at night. Uh, and... Uh, so here Zahn is kind of justifying what he's doing. Having Ben show up in a dream was to be an echo of Luke's vision of Ben in his near unconscious state in the swirling snow of the Hoth night. On Hoth, I've assumed the timing and circumstances of the vision were mostly factors of Luke's inexperience and lack of strength in the force, requiring that borderline state of mind and body for Ben to make his appearance. Here, conversely, it's Ben's weakness or distance that dictates the means of contact. So I, I guess, don't know. So I guess Kenobi has a bad cell signal. He has a bad cell signal from wherever he is in the in the Force right now. Uh, so, so he calls Luke to say, I gotta Luke, say, I kind of hated Kenobi's appearance in this novel. Because it, it just seemed like yeah. reminding you that he was in the movies. Well, there. so I have two notes that are... that touch on that. And I'm with you. I, I think this all could have just not even happened. Uh, but one we have here that says, One of the parameters I wanted to set for the trilogy was that Luke would be entirely on his own as a Jedi, with no one he could call on for help or advice. Um, I mean, I agree and, with that. Uh, yeah, I agree with that too. And the thing is, I think that's set up nicely at the end of Return of the Jedi, where like the Force ghosts of his, you know, his, his masters if you want to call them that, are all, all there, smiling down on him in the moment of his trial. Good old Hayden Christensen. Good old Hayden Christensen getting CGI'd in there. Uh, but, like, yeah, I mean, that's a nice little cap on it, right? Like, you could just write it as, like, Luke was laying awake at night saying, boy, I wish I could talk to Ben Kenobi. And and you accomplish the same thing. Um, but here yeah, we have this is like regarding those... finding a, a lost voicemail from Ben Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here, here's kind of Zahn's first note about movie quotes, and he's a little defensive. Um, I used a fair number of movie quotes in these books, not just to remind readers of those scenes, like any of us Star Wars fans really needed reminders, but also because important Fuck or traumatic Zahn. events... <laughs> but also because important or traumatic events in a person's life tend to remain vivid for years to come. Luke's last conversation with Yoda would be one of those events, and something he would never forget. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. A little weak sauce. I'm always quoting things that happened to me in the past. (laughs) I sit there and I think of the exact quotes that, uh, you know, uh, a girlfriend said to me when, uh, you know, I got, I got dumped or something. That's real. Yeah. That's something I love to do. Um, 
and we have another uh, we have a note about like uh you know the in the frenetic life and death challenges of the movies it's easy to forget that luke's really had a pretty hard life it's the kind of thing that comes back most depressingly in the darkness and silence at three in the morning goodness timothy do you, do you have something you want to tell us uh, i don't know about that it's dark there yeah <laughs> uh so let's oh, see the sizzler uh, oh. appearances didn't go so well it didn't. It didn't go all all that well. Uh, there's another note. A couple notes later, it says work related problems are another one of those cheery thought categories that usually hit about 3 a.m. TZ. Again, Tim, uh, you might want to talk to your wife or maybe a, a professional about this. Uh, but here, here we come. The humdinger, the, the the standout moment of chapter two, which has of course echoed through the ages and was one that we harped on a lot. So I hate I hate to tell you, Ronnie, we were firmly in the camp of a bunch of weird, awful nerds because here we have it. This was one of those odd thoughts that came out of the blue and struck me as both clever and logical. Hot chocolate wouldn't be something desert people would naturally gravitate toward. Uh, there are cold deserts, of course, but with two suns, I always assumed Tatooine was mostly pretty warm. Now, of course, the Star Wars Essential Atlas and other official materials back up that assumption. I also caught way more grief for this than I ever expected. Quite a few people took me to task for putting an Earth-based drink into the Star Wars universe. And get ready to have our asses handed to us, dude. Of course, those same people apparently weren't bothered by the Millennium Falcon or Light Sabers. It was, though, a reminder that you never know what word or image might jolt someone out of their suspension of disbelief. Anyway, who would want to live in that galaxy far, far away if they don't have chocolate? Inconceivable. TZ. Well, when you start scrutinizing the likes of Millennium Falcon and Lightsaber, eventually you're at a point where you can't use any words. Right. I was going to say, you're, you're going to reach a point where you can't use the English language. And furthermore, like, yeah, like, we're under the assumption that... I would love to see that... Zahn try that. <laughs> Just compose entirely in Gleep Glorp. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've probably made, like, uh, fucking novels written in Klingon, right? Yeah, famously, they're actually, I, I recall this very vividly from my time in the science fiction racks in the 90s looking for Star Wars novels. There was a translation of Hamlet into Klingon. As a, I guess, a, as a, uh, a novelty gag gift, you could buy the Trekkie in your life. Uh, For the people who are like, I want to read uh, Shakespeare, but I want to be a fucking loser while doing so. <laughs> I want to read Shakespeare in the stupidest way possible. Um, and we have a, 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 another note here. Um, it's like I almost as bad as reading note. Shakespeare in rap form. <laughs> well, he was the first rapper. Not a lot of people know that, Ronnie. Here we go. C-3PO always seems about three steps behind everyone else on pretty much everything. One of his many charms and a lot of fun to write. TZ. I think he nailed it right there. That's actually, that's a pretty good sense for how to write C-3PO. That he's three steps behind and does not understand any. And, you know, for someone who's a protocol droid, so presumably for use in diplomatic contexts, he's surprisingly not able to pick up on any kind of context clues or, like, he can't read the room, C-3PO, you know? I guess that's what makes it funny. There's like right. a 700-page yeah. thread in Wikipedia about, like, <laughs> C-3PO autistic question mark. <laughs> I, 
I guess maybe maybe he doesn't work quite right because he was built by uh, a little kid with a bowl cut. So you know his circuits are by quite a fucking right. budding sociopath. Yeah, yeah. By by a kid just just flooded with midi chlorians. Um, again, that's prequel, so it didn't happen. Yeah, it does. We have no knowledge of that. So uh, who knows who built C three PO? It could have been I, I, one, would, Mo. one would presume a factory where they make them, <laughs> as was everyone was happy to assume for you know twenty five years. Uh, so here's here's a fun. Yeah, note. Do you remember yeah, our co- you just made oh, me sorry. think about that. Like, it's kind of like establishing like a vacuum cleaner was actually built by a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it's really stupid. does not. It's, stu- I'm gonna, it's stupid. My, my hot take: the prequels were not very well thought out. Ronald, how could you? George Lucas was sweating and slaving away from as early as 1991 or two. And you have the temerity to say they were not well thought out. My goodness. That uh, that whole thing stinks <laughs> of like, I've spent five years purportedly writing this and the due date is next week and I got to cram it all <laughs> in at the end. I, you know what? You're, you're really, you're right. Um, I somehow, I think it may have even been her idea. I think I may have mentioned her on an earlier episode on the show that my wife has been on a an organizing kick, and she got uh, digging around through the DVDs, which, of course, in the streaming era, we don't really get into uh, all that much. But she did discover that we do have a copy of The Phantom Menace on DVD. Um, I think it was among her mother's effects. Uh, but uh, she did agree precious to watch heirloom. it with me. A precious heirloom. She did agree to watch it with me because I haven't seen it, of course, since that opening night when I, I watched it. Uh, so I think we'll have a we'll have a hoot with that one, but uh, Ronnie, do you remember our discussion about whether Ben Kenobi rented out his uh, his skills as a baby detector? Yes, we have a note for that. Oh boy, here it's here it says, did Obi Wan and Anakin have any of the same sense of Luke and Leia when Padme was carrying them? An intriguing question, and one I'm not sure we ever had an answer for. What do you mean we never had an answer for? You're the one who brought it up an intriguing question this was your deal <laughs> I guess, sure it, I guess it's up to George to figure that out <laughs> he's like just, Timothy's on is just like writing George Lucas letters year after year like uh, Mr. Lucas uh, did the other Jedi know when Luke and Leia were inside Princess Padme please answer now I'm just imagining uh, a version of Eminem Stan but with uh with Timothy Zahn writing George Lucas. <laughs> I, boy, if I had an ounce of creativity or energy, I would absolutely make that music video for showing at, uh, at, at nerd events. I think, I think people will get a hoot out of it. Although this is striking me as pretty close to an MC Chris, and I don't want to be like that guy. Oh, because so, he, maybe, that maybe one not. time he was a bad hang. You hate him for the rest of your life. <laughs> I had I, anyone who's a bad hang once they are written out of the book of life. As far as I'm concerned. Um, all right, here's a fun one. One of the best parts about writing air was the opportunity to create new characters and fit them into the star Wars universe. Winter was the first person I introduced into the good guy side of the equation. 
Aside from her general usefulness as a character, she also gave me the opportunity to express my opinion that Leia always seemed too tomboyish to fit comfortably into the role of a soft, pampered member of the aristocracy. Which, given that we know her mother was the feisty, down-in-the-dirt Padme, isn't all that surprising. Couple things... Couple things here. One. Usefulness? Has Winter been useful? <laughs> I can't... I forgot what she like, did. She talked to Han Solo on the phone. But yeah, it was it was like... She had a conversation with Princess Leia at the beginning of the book, and then she talked to C-3PO while he was impersonating Princess Leia. Oh, hey, Leia did this book pass the Bechdel test? Oh, shit. Let's think. Uh, well, Leia and Winter had conversations about stuff other than a man, so it does. Yeah, so that's why Winter is in the book. <laughs> that's what their usefulness is as a character. <laughs> That's right. I mean, every other character is, I guess, except for Mara Jade, but, you know, she's she's in a different plot line. Uh, but, yeah, every other character is either a man or a, a salacious crumb or something. Yeah. yeah or a genderless or, robot. Or a genderless robot. This is true. Uh, <laughs> all right. And that's kind of the, uh, the, the, the last interesting things of the Chapter 2 notes. Uh, so moving on to Chapter 3... And remember, this was the introduction of uh, Talon Card and his operation on, on Mirker. So the first note here is, Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress, was an 18th century German romantic literary movement emphasizing struggles of the individual against society. I thought those names would appeal to Card, whom I saw as being an educated, pun-loving sort. This one didn't get me nearly as much grief as the hot chocolate reference. My assumption is that those who caught the reference were more amused than annoyed by it. Is that how you would describe yourself, Ronnie? Were you amused rather than annoyed? I, I just thought it was stupid. <laughs> That's kind of where I landed, too. It's just really oh, like... Oh, great, he has theme names for his dogs. Yeah, right, I was going to say, like, it's it's in the tradition of, like, like you know, double names for, for two animals. You know, like Sugar and Spice or something. But it's Why does he drawn. knit them fucking sweaters while he's at it? Maybe he will. I mean, I, I think we're going to get a lot more card in Dark Force Rising. We might that might happen. When I, um, when I think of Talon Card, I just imagine that Zahn uh, was at the typewriter and was like, "I'm going to imagine the coolest guy I can possibly imagine." <laughs> well, this next note I think is a little window into that because remember how uh, remember how Han is clearly. Uh, Zahn's favorite character well here we go in some ways Card is my vision of how Han might have ended up if he hadn't dropped into the Mos Eisley Cantina that that afternoon for a quiet drink both men have a code of honor especially toward their friends and both are willing to be part of a larger group though Han admittedly dragged his feet a long time before getting to that place so basically Talon Card is Zahn's vision of himself if, like, you know, he never settled down. If he if he never did get married to that old ball and chain Leia, what would he be like? <laughs> He'd be hanging out with hot women like Mara Jade and uh, cool dudes like Chen. Ooh, yeah, and uh, Ghent. You know, he'd be cracking wise with, with Ghent and Chen. Oh, boy. Um, oh, here's, here's Zahn a thing. imagining what if he kept his bachelor pad. That's exactly it. Yeah. 
It had his, and if you recall, Card's the kind of guy who would have a minivan or a sensible sedan with a souped-up Lamborghini engine in it. God, why did you from that other remind note. me of that shit? <laughs> <laughs> this is a trip down memory lane for, for all of us in a lot of ways. I had memory hold so much of the stupid things that uh, Zahn <laughs> said and did. Yeah, it's almost it's it's doing a good job at chipping away at our grudging respect that we ended up with, uh, which maybe that puts us in a you know a better state. To actually yeah, these show. these uh, these author notes are really hoisting him on his own petard. So, and here's a good example of that. So we remember how there's no paper in Star Wars because that never showed up in the movies. So, if you recall the time where. Uh, they like you know got the electro binoculars and looked up at the star destroyer and it had the word chimera on the side. Here's a note about that. Not sure imperial ships or rebel ships for that matter had their names or operating numbers anywhere on their hulls. Still, it is something most Earth navies do, so I figured it was reasonable here too. Yeah, Mother- I guess. I sure. I mean, that's fine. But if you're all, but if you're going to like agonize over saying hit and fade instead of hit and run and how there's no paper because no one used any paper in the movies, then like, yeah, you never saw a name of a ship on the side of a ship in a movie with a fucking ton of spaceships in it. I don't think you can, you can't have it both ways. I, that one, that one almost had me. It's so anodyne, but it had me. So, so now we're supposed to assume <laughs> that basic looks exactly like English. I mean, I, I thought guess, it'd well, be that, funny if like it was the chimera and then it was just a bunch of squiggles that, didn't resemble anything that didn't actually say anything yeah yeah or or, or it may be like um because uh, how often know. have we I seen think... how, have, how often how often have we seen text in the star wars movies i mean i recall seeing a lot of it in star wars video games i mean no, just that's, a lot of times, like... that's not continuity daniel well all right all right all right so i'm trying to think like if we did see a lot of te- we i don't think we did see a lot of text I don't even remember. We like need a, to rewatch like a... the Star Wars movies just to see what uh... we can include and exclude. <laughs> we just... need to watch the Star Wars movies to to see where Zahn broke his own code. Just uh, get uh... out a get out a notebook and a and a number two pencil and start writing down all of the things that exist in Star Wars and all the things that don't. That don't. Yeah, I swear to God, I, I bet we are gonna spot someone with like a like a like a legal pad in the Hoth base or something. It'll, we'll be be like, like, it'll be like it'll be like Game of Thrones <laughs> where someone accidentally left a coffee cup on set. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so here we have right after right after literally two notes after this one about how like yeah there were never any names or operating numbers, but I figured that was okay to do. Here we have a note that says. One of the tricky things about writing Star Wars, or any other shared media work, is to not only keep track of what was done in the movies, but also keep track of what wasn't done. If something that could have been useful wasn't done, it means there must have been a good reason why not. The Isalamiri are a good example. A creature that can block Jedi abilities should have been used all over the place throughout the movies by anti-Jedi forces. Unless... They were unreliable, difficult to find, difficult to use, etc. To be on the safe side, I invoked two of those limiting parameters. The creatures are relatively unknown, the Jedi would hardly broadcast their existence after all, and they're hard to get off the trees without killing them. TZ. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, I think it's I, I just think it's incompatible with the thing he just said. 
So that's what got me, you know, spun up about it. Uh, and here's one last note for chapter three. Um, uh, it's, it's the part where Card is kind of musing about how he doesn't know much about Mara Jade's backstory. Card's not alone here. There are many readers who also want to learn Mara's backstory. On the other hand, there are also many readers who want that backstory to remain shrouded in mystery. Whatever I end up doing on this one, I'm going to be in trouble with somebody. Still, there are a few things we do know about Mara's past. We'll get to those in a bit. I mean, so it eventually this... blows the entire thing, so... Right. I mean, I, that's why I was thinking of reading this. Like, it's in the present tense, so is there, like... Is there still some question about Mara's backstory? That doesn't sound right. I mean, she spilled the beans. I guess we haven't I mean, seen maybe her it's a like, toddler or whatever. I was going to say, it must mean, like, Mara's backstory before she got, you know, picked to be the, the Emperor's, you know, death hottie. I mean, I don't know. Very, very strange. Um... Which brings us to chapter four. And as, as we're moving on, the, the notes are becoming less and less extensive. Just kind of as I mentioned, because like, you know, the first couple of chapters, Zahn is front loading all of his new stuff. So he has a lot more to say about that. So we don't really have all that, you know, as, as the chapters go forward, we'll have kind of, you know, fewer for each of those chapters. But uh, there's still a lot of meat on these bones and we will be picking on them. Um but on uh, chapter four, which is the one that uh, I noted starts out with, someone actually describing how long it takes to get somewhere. And I appreciated that. Uh, Timothy says here, I had a whole hyperdrive system worked out, modeled on the time dilation formula from relativistic physics, with a range of possible light speed numbers that ran exponentially from zero, dead stop, to one, infinite speed. It was elegant, looked very cool, and allowed me to actually use some of my college physics. Alas, later on, when I wasn't looking... Lucasfilm and or West End Games came up with an entirely different system. Still, it was fun while it lasted. TZ. Those fucking Philistines. They did not appreciate college physics. And I have had it up to here with those assholes. Because the thing is, it, it is like the one, as I said, I appreciated at the time. Like, it's the one time anyone has ever told me how long it takes to get anywhere in a Star War. Uh, which really helps when you have, like, multiple storylines. Like... I think that's good to understand whether or not someone is within range to help someone else. But to play devil's advocate, I think that invoking physics, real-world physics, in uh, this Gleepclop pile of nonsense is not in keeping with the credo of Star Wars, which is everything's made-up bullshit that doesn't matter. (laughs) That's a good point. I've, I've argued before that Star Wars falls within a genre or a categorization that I've referred to as cosmic fantasy. Because uh, you'll see people use terms like science fantasy or or whatnot. Uh, and I, I don't like that term as much. Um, because, I mean, science is still in there. But to my mind, Star Wars falls under a category called cosmic fantasy where the the actual cosmos is largely exists as it has been discovered by astronomical science that the worlds people live on are planets that revolve around stars and stars are in galaxies. So it's a cosmos that looks more or less like what we have scientifically determined, but the actual goings on are chock full of magic and ass poles. So it's not really scientific. I I just call it space bullshit. Space bullshit is also (laughs) 
That's what. See, there we go. See, that's what. That's what we have here. This this dynamic we have. I with my pointy-headed ivory tower insistence on terms like cosmic fantasy, and you with your uh, workaday lunch pail working class attitude, just willing to straight up call it space bullshit. Uh, I appreciate your forthrightness, Ronald. That's the that's that that's that rugged working class spirit of Wisconsin coming through for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's like stars, there's lasers. What more do you need? Mm-hmm. Absolutely makes a lot of sense. Uh, so we have. Um, so I'm just imagining like going to a bookstore and you just like, uh, could you uh, could you please uh, locate the uh, space bullshit section for me? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. right next to the sci-fi. That's right next to the sci-fi. Yeah, which is also a lot of bullshit in there. Uh. <laughs> and I just so he, I, I I just want to say for a second. I hate like yeah. when people say that like it's hard sci-fi because it's like oh it, yeah 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 it, I, that was the thing I hated about the uh, the most recent Fantastic Four movie when they said it was like you know hard science fiction because it's just like what <laughs> it's just like it's it's just like sci-fi but more boring and also like I'm sorry but anything with superpowers. Science has flown out the window. Please fuck off. Yeah, you didn't that do many insane. fucking formulas with this shit. That is insane. That is t- so stupid. Yeah, the the word hard science fiction is really abused a lot. I personally, I would use it to describe because all science fiction is going to have uh, a, a fantastical conceit. Um, otherwise, it's, it's just fiction, right? Because like the idea, and not to get too deep in the weeds about what science fiction is or what it's for or what have you, but like. Going if, back, if I it doesn't really make me do... want to fall asleep, it's not hard sci-fi. <laughs> but science fiction has always existed in a in a state of anticipating scientific advances. Like science fiction became kind of gelled as a genre during the 19th century, where your worldview was really upended every couple of decades. There were new forces being discovered. There were new, you know, forces being harnessed. There were new modes of transportation. So it wasn't a big stretch to think, oh, well, soon scientists are going to discover that, you know, you can move things with your own, with your mind, and that will be science. You know, soon science will discover a chemical that will allow for this or that. And so the idea behind hard science fiction was that you were purposefully limiting how many of those reaches you made, right? Like most of the science going on in your story was established, proven physics or chemistry or what have you. But you also, you know, you have like a a miraculous, oh, they have a faster than light space drive. And you, you hand wave it just like, because that's what we need for this story to be cool, you know. Uh, yeah, I like the, how but we've chanced of... upon this subject when we're very consciously doing a podcast about a book series that is space bullshit. <laughs> but it, it rests within this literary tradition, Ronald. We have to we have to dig in a little bit sometimes, but uh, all that to say, I, I I too am very annoyed with the application of because the thing the thing that happens is that like it ends up being like I've heard Dune described as hard science fiction, which is completely fucking insane. That is, there's nothing close to hard SF happening in a setting where like fucking mutants travel faster than light by snorting space cocaine that worms shit out. Get the fuck... Come on. That's not hard science fiction. Well, what about uh, hardcore science fiction? Am I right, folks? Ooh, I don't like the sound of that. 
I'm sure there's a lot of that on Daniel's hard drive. <laughs> there absolutely is not. Anyone is welcome to look. It is mostly pictures of my child and mammal-like reptiles. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, so continuing. so really you have a hard sci-fi uh, hard drive because it's very boring. <laughs> exactly. Dry as dust. Um but we have some pretty choice notes here in chapter four because this is, of course, the chapter that introduces the Dark Jedi. Uh, so here we have a note. With the official definition of Sith still a few years in the future, I had to come up with a label for a Jedi who has fallen to the dark side. I chose the descriptive, if not very original term, Dark Jedi. The definition is unfortunately a bit squishy, referring nowadays to both a fallen Jedi and also a Force user who never underwent proper training but perhaps learned under the tutelage of another dark Jedi. For this reason, and probably a few others, the term is somewhat discouraged. At the time, though, it was the best any of us had to work with. Which, you know, I think that's fair. It still it still sounds stupid, but this is Star Wars. A lot of stuff sounds stupid. Uh, well, but, I mean, uh, he could have done something worse. That's true. I mean, it really, he could have come up with his own word, you know, I don't know. But here we get a really, really meaty one, and one that I think explains a lot. Because I mentioned I had been going back and listening to some of the old episodes, and, and you mentioned before that when uh, Jorus Kabeoth was introduced that he just sounded like he looked like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Right. Here's a note. In my first outline, this character was an insane clone of Obi-Wan Kenobi created before the Clone Wars by the Emperor and put here to guard the storehouse. That would have given me a very interesting dynamic to work with, especially when Luke faces him in Dark Force Rising. At that point, with his own emotions running high, Luke would have, would have to determine whether this was a trick or, in fact, a reincarnation of his old friend and master. Lucasfilm vetoed the idea. I lobbied very hard to keep it, modifying it six ways from Sunday to try to make sure I didn't step on George's yet-to-be-written prequel toes, but it was to no avail. Reluctantly, grouchily, I rewrote the part for Kabeoth instead. Now, as is the case with so many of the strictures and boundaries Lucasfilm put on me, I'm glad they reined me in. Not only is Kabeoth an interesting character in his own right, but in my subsequent... Citation needed. But my subsequent outbound flight novel would have had to be drastically different. And here's the real kicker. Are you ready for this, Ronnie? Hit me. Kabeoth, incidentally, is pronounced Sabeoth, with the first vowel pronounced like the A in has. So Sabeoth. It's a soft C. The how hell? the hell am I supposed to, how am I supposed to know that from the orthography people if you if you haven't seen how this is actually written out in the book it's spelled C capital C apostrophe lowercase b a o t h now say that in your head say that in your head that's kabeoth but no that's what what Zahn here is saying is that he intended Okay, and he says here, if I'd realized how hard it was going to be for everyone else to figure it out, I would have changed the spelling. Fuck, come on. You're you're writing in English. Spelling for a made-up name. You're writing in English. The rule in English orthography is that the C is soft if it's followed by an I or an E. It's not soft if it's followed by a fucking apostrophe. Ah, well, he's not writing in English. He's writing in basic. 
<sighs> he's writing in basic and it's translating to it's one other one of those transliteration problems you're right i should i should get off his case i should get off his case uh also this is kind paper of doesn't exist in star wars why how are we reading it the book uh kindles boom yeah but i definitely oh. <laughs> have a, a physical book well that's true but that's in our world so in the in the Star Wars world, they would be reading on their Kindles or with their Audible subscriptions. So I guess they just Speaking have. It, so I guess since it takes place in a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, they just haven't invented paper yet. <laughs> well, you see, they never they never con- say they they contacted Mesoamerican civilizations to get chocolate, but they never contacted the Chinese, so they never they never received paper. So you know, you win some, you lose some. Uh, the back half of this note. Uh, talking about the spelling and how hard it was for everyone to figure out. To be fair, part of the problem was also that when the audio adaptations of the book came out, several of the names and words were a bit mangled, leaving a lingering confusion in the minds of everyone who heard them. It wasn't just my stuff either. Anthony Daniels, who did one of the readings, later told me the pronunciation sheet he was given had Tatooine wrong too. TZ. Fucking... Penny ante, get your, amateur get your, hour bullshit is this? <laughs> get Tatooine wrong? This is fucking... You need to understand, this is Star Wars, okay? This is not Battlestar Galactica. This is not Blake's Seven, okay? This is Star Wars. Get it fucking together, people. I, I, I can't, just imagining I can't. Anthony Daniels being like, uh, excuse me, I think you have a uh, Tatooine pronounced wrong. Yeah, shut up, robot. <laughs> shut it, limey. Now get your limp, get your limp, uh, wrist good and limp. We're about to record. So, <laughs> so we got uh, a couple. Now I kind of want to hear this shoddy audio book that uh, gets all the pronunciations wrong. Well, yeah, that that would actually be a, a pretty good time, honestly. A lot, uh, a lot of bloops in that. Uh audiobook yeah so here we have another um we have another controversy this is about the isalamiri uh i caught more grief for this one than even the hot chocolate incident which is just such a good sentence to read god i love it the complaints mostly focused on the idea that the force is created by living beings and that it can't be pushed back in the way i described certainly not from the other living beings Note, though, that I didn't say that was the case. Thrawn did. And contrary to popular belief, Thrawn doesn't know everything. What's actually happening, and we'll see it in action later, is that Isalamiri simply suppress the level of the Force to something below the threshold that Jedi can access. It's a fine distinction, but an important one. Still, the bottom line for Jedi, and more important for Sabaoth, Sorry, Kabaoth. I'm not going to change how I'm saying Kabaoth. It's basically the same. Thrawn can therefore be excused for perhaps oversimplifying his explanation. Uh, we got a couple more choice ones from here, chapter four. So Thrawn thinks uh, it's some made up thing, but it's actually a completely different made up thing. Right. It's, it reminds me of that note about how, like, Luke, when he was flying into Dagobah, you know, like, like you might think that that was. Uh, Yoda had like drawn his X-Wing there, but actually he hadn't been doing that. What he had been doing was messing with Luke's perception of the controls. <laughs> it's like you're at six and one half dozen the other guy. Neither either way is just as stupid. It's fine. Uh 
Um, I mean, but, like, uh, depicting the, the Force as, like, some physical entity is getting pretty close to midichlorians. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. <clears throat> um, here we have a nice note that I, I really, I read with a lot of suppressed, I I hear a lot of suppressed venom in it. Uh, this is about the Clone Wars that had been mentioned in this chapter. Again, my assumptions about the Clone Wars were exactly backward. I assumed the clones would be fighting against the Republic instead of being on their side. Parentheses. Nice twist, George. Close parentheses. <laughs> Fortunately, facing doesn't necessarily mean fighting. My choice of words here was pure luck, and it helped me avoid a retroactive gaffe. Uh, not really. That no. just reminds <laughs> me of that Simpsons joke where they go, Remember when Maggie shot Mr. Burns? I thought Mr. Smithers did that. Yeah, that would have exactly. made a lot more sense. Yeah, that would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> nice twist, George. Ay, boy. Uh, I would love to, like... Uh, buy Timothy Zahn like a bottle of wild turkey and just watch the prequels with him. <laughs> I bet he has things to say. I I'm with you. That sounds like a like a hoot. That's a good. Maybe that'll be our our our, our season three finale when we finish the uh, trilogy. We'll have we'll 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 raise a, a Patreon to have the fans fly us out to Tampa, where we'll we'll drink some wild turkey with Timothy Zahn and just get the straight shit. Uh, so we move on to chapter five, which is the arguing in a council. See the first of the arguing in a council scenes. And we actually have this really extensive note about Borsk Falia, your favorite character, Ronnie. I know how right. much you love Borsk Falia. So, so here's a little more insight. <laughs> in Return of the Jedi, Mon Mothma said that Bothan spies had learned the new Death Star's location and an Imperial code that would allow a surreptitious rebel approach. Even though that all turned out to be a trap, I figured the Bothans would probably use that work would probably use that work to work themselves into a good position in the fledgling New Republic hierarchy, especially if I gave them a high level of smooth political maneuvering skills. The result of that train of thought was Borsk failure. But even beyond that, I wanted to show the New Republic as being a somewhat uneasy patchwork of differing political views, motivations, and goals. We have this conflict in any group of humans of any size. Surely, among different types of aliens, the effect would be even more pronounced. That's a little spacism. That's spacist. So again, I, I was just Borsk... amusing myself, imagining Zahn about to say that, like the New Republic was a patchwork monster party. Because <laughs> what are Bothans again? Are they yak people? They're the cow people. Okay, cow people. So cl- so close. Yeah, they're 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 close. They have the long faces and the the creamy creamy fur. So again, Borsk Falia. For all the frustration and trouble he causes, he's not a quote-unquote villain in the usual sense. He and his people simply have different ways of achieving their political goals. The fact that his approach causes chaos and possible destruction is apparently never a concern to him. It's the way Bothans have always done things, and he and they see no reason to change. TZ. Yeah, well, maybe if the uh, fucking Space Democratic Party had put some money into the primary, <laughs> failure wouldn't have won again. <laughs> yeah, I do have to wonder, like, wh- what is he actually thinking of there? I, I couldn't, I couldn't say, I couldn't say. Timothy Zahn uh, strikes me as somebody so incredibly boring that this doesn't map to any actual political beliefs. 
No, no, he just he just he well we I think we've said before he's definitely a principal Skinner. Do you have any campaign buttons that say let may the better man win kind of guy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's one the, more note he's I the guy to who would vote for that Andrew Yang forward party. <laughs> he's there like neither right nor left but forward. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Pull the lever. Um yeah, just vacuous, utterly politically vacuous. Uh here's a note that we have from uh from Betsy uh, at the end of chapter five where the whole the lunchbox gang is is uh getting they're going to bimsari so they're all loaded up on the falcon and going to bimsari uh and you know like yeah lucrahan or somebody says uh, just exactly like old times um just exactly like old times perfectly calls to mind various scenes from the original star wars luke practicing his newfound force abilities chewie and r2d2 playing dejarik han and leia sniping at each other Therefore, there's no need to spell out what occurs between the end of this chapter and the beginning of chapter six. Tim simply announces that the Falcon has arrived at Bimisari. BM. It's just like all those I... other trips we took in Stars. Uh, yeah, like you don't like to me. That sounds like, hey, those were all fun or informative character moments, right? Those were all demonstrating certain them aspects again. of the characters. Just it's just like you, you couldn't do that now with like they it's five years on. Leia is pregnant. Luke is 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 kind of suppressed with this guilt and inadequacy. You could have interactions like taking place on the Falcon that inform the reader, but but Betsy, who knows her business, was like, Oh no, that's that's good, Tim. No, yeah, you did it. Huh. Oh boy. I have to imagine that Zahn's first draft was just like him doing scenes that are like Hey, it's like that time uh, Chewie and C-3PO played uh, Space Chess. And uh, <laughs> Han and Leia argue with each other in a manner reminiscent of that time in the first Star Wars. Yes, um, it would be a little bit similar to, uh, I think I mentioned in the show chat, I've been I've been going and listening to the uh, 327 pages we'll never get back. The podcast we have mentioned here before. 372, sorry. 372 pages we'll never get back. Uh, their series they did on Ready Player Two, and awful book. Boy, that it just even just getting it uh, vicariously through those guys. I just it my skin crawls. Uh, but that sounds like an awful lot like what a lot of that stuff is like. And then uh, I think there was one on the episode I listened today that like a character held a cricket bat just like Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> so maybe we could have a lot a lot more like that, you know. Chewie played Chewie played chess, just like that time Chewie played chess. Yeah, uh, say what you will about Zahn, but at least his only uh, his only context for events is stuff that happened in the original Star Wars movies. Imagine if he was given full reign to the to the full uh, thrust of pop culture. Yeah, really. It's well, we've seen what that is, and it's a it's an unreadable nightmare. Yeah, um, why is Ready Player One a movie and this isn't? It's an injustice. It's a genuine, true injustice. Why? Why is Ready Player One a Steven Spielberg movie? Do you do you realize there are going to be like film idiots if Civilization survives another fifty years? There are going to be film uh, film guys who are like like oh yeah, I'm a Spielberg completist, so they watch every Spielberg movie, and it's going to have to include Ready Player One. There are going to be insane? people that say that's good, actually. Oh, I'm oh god, there are. 
There are. There are going to be those people. Just like people Thank- that say that the prequels are good, actually. Yeah, I just, I just, I'm just thankful I'll be dead by then. Uh, yeah, you will be dead five <laughs> years from now. I will be. I am an old man, and I will be dead five years from now. Uh, so we move on to uh, here. We're, we're at Bims, where they met the Bims. We all fondly remember the Bims and their flea market, which was essential to get into the Republic. The yellow-shirted um, guys, right? The yellow-shirted guys who love to stand in line. Uh, and so they're just there's really NPCs. not a lot of they, it's the NPC race. They really are. Uh, there are a couple. There are a couple of things here that uh, I thought were fun. Uh, here we have a, a note from Betsy. Han's line here is pitch perfect. One of Tim's greatest challenges in this book was to recreate the voices of the film, of the film characters. It's so easy to imagine Harrison Ford grinding out, "I like marketplaces. I like them a lot." So Betsy agrees that that was actually a funny line, and that was good and in keeping with uh, with Han Solo's character. Yeah, Once if there's again, one thing Zahn has done, it's capture the voice of Harrison Ford slash Han Solo pretty well. It's true, and I think we'll you know we'll we'll continue to give him credit, and uh, and Betsy Betsy gets it as well. Here's one thing that I will not give Zahn credit for, and I think you'll see why. Here's a note: as with extra planets, I can easily throw lots of different aliens into the background scenes. One of the advantages books have over movies: my costume and makeup departments don't take up much space. Yeah, dude. They don't take up any space because you don't tell us what any of these people look like. <laughs> They're alien looking aliens. <laughs> That's what an insane thing to say. <laughs> My costume and makeup part departments don't take up much space. Yeah, bro. We know they don't. That's just, I mean, look at oh his two God. alien creations. He's got the Nogri, which are like these great like Darth jerks Vader. who supposedly yeah. have Darth Vader faces. <laughs> and the Bims who wear yellow shirts. Um, I guess you can also count Thrawn as an alien race he created. Yeah, but he's just a human. Humanoid. He's a human with blue skin. Yeah. yeah, he's just one of those libertarians that take all that colloid silver. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> that's why. That's why I brought up in the show chat when we were talking about a live action version of Thrawn, and that there are very few legitimately blue actors that's that's very true yeah you don't really yeah if you're gonna be casting you're necessarily gonna have to be doing blue face um or you're just gonna have to except, have the blue man group again or i say you could get uh, rebecca romaine she could she's a blue skin person that's true uh yeah i think that would be fun a gender swapped uh thrawn oh god i'm sure there's plenty of fan art of that we'll have to ask megan about that yeah let's, we'll, let's we'll take find out if there's some rule 63 <laughs> when we uh, get our uh, uh, uh listeners we we've hinted before but one of our bonus episodes in between seasons is going to be discussing uh admiral thrawn and his place in the star wars fandom culture with our our good friend megan so we can look forward to that so there's one last there's one last note in these lost levels that i i wanted to share with you ronnie in part because it is pretty defensive and those are always the funny ones. Uh, it says here, um, this is, okay, I'll just, I'll just read it straight. Along with things like the hot chocolate, third time this has come up, one of the major complaints I received was that I'd used too many of the movie lines in the book. The accusation was that I was simply trying to connect the movies, trying to connect to the movies to add legitimacy to my books. I disagreed. And this particular quote is a good example of what I was actually trying to do. 
Every family over their years together develops a collection of private words and phrases that evoke incidents in their past, a kind of shorthand to their shared memories. In this case, Han's comment is a reminder of the asteroid field incident, when his snap judgment, or so Leia thought at the time, proved to be the correct action. Leia's response, again echoing that time, is her admission that he was right in that case, and yes, he's probably right in this one too. Teasy. Well, see, the problem with that is that all of the the code words and shit is stuff that you saw in Star Wars. Right. That's why it doesn't hang together. Like, it doesn't... They've had five years of being a married couple, presuming they got married pretty soon after Revenge, uh, Revenge of the Jedi, Return of the Jedi. Like... Yeah, and like I know what he's talking about. Like, yeah, like you have like basically you, when you're when you're close with somebody and you communicate with them a lot, like you have a repertoire of basically like inside jokes and and synecdoches that you use with each other. That's true. But yeah, you're right. Like this is just what what makes it strike what makes it ring hollow, what makes it ring false is that it's all things that we watched them say, <laughs> which is which is not how that actually works. Uh, also, but, he's really guilty of, uh, like, ladling it on throughout the book of, like, you know, this is just like that scene from uh, Return of the Jedi. Yep. Or, uh, how about that time Boba Fett fell in the Sarlacc pit? Or, not, it's not even, like, using quotes from the movie. Like, you'll have, like, you know, Luke, you know, being like, oh, yeah, this reminded me of that, that time on Tatooine, or whatever. Yeah, I'm not saying I necessarily you know, want it, but, like, he could at least, like refer to adventures we hadn't seen. Yeah, I think that would be so much more effective than because we know that he's 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 fine. In with fact, like, that's something that the original Star Wars did well cuz they're talking about like the Kessel Run and <laughs> shit and like uh, uh Lando the losing Wars. the the Millennium Falcon in a game of Sabacc or whatever. All right, these things right. that all these things that were left to to the imagination until fucking nerds got a hold of him and decided to explain them all to death. <laughs> like there's, I'm sure there's a, an extended universe novel about Tashi Station somewhere out there. <laughs> See, nerds ruin everything. Nerds do ruin everything. Unlike us, who are nerds who make things much better with our measured uh, commentary. And interpretive uh, power, which is what uh, exempts us from any sort of lawsuit regarding use of copyrighted material. Because we are, of course, a review show. Uh, and here we have reviewed the the TZ and BM's lost levels, the notes that we didn't know we had all along uh, when we recorded our first handful of episodes. Uh, Ronnie, has this been enlightening for you? I have all the more reason to have a distaste for Timothy Zahn. All of all of the respect that he managed to to, to claw uh, with his adequate resolution of his military science fiction novel dashed away. Just his just fucking total, totally blown it's away. Irritating. It's really like ye, this is very. It's very axe to grind. Like you can tell, this is all the things he spent twenty years just fuming about. <laughs> He's finally going to vent his spleen. I mean, to be fair, uh, he's probably at like comic book and sci-fi conventions and some fucking turd is like bringing up the hot chocolate and it's been like 17 years. Right, and he thinks that, he thinks he's, he's the first guy to ever say it. Well, like us, you know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, I know. Fucking <laughs> hot chocolate. It doesn't exist in Star Wars. I get it. He's 
he's been dealing with Daniels and Ronnie's for for twenty years at this point. He's ready to he's ready to set the record straight. But that's all right because we hit back ten years after that. So now the ball's in your court, Timothy. Also, please invite us to Tampa. We'll bring a handle of wild turkey, and we can just we can just shoot the shit, my man. But with that, that concludes our uh, our bonus episode. This went a lot longer than I thought it would. I, I I honestly didn't think we would have a lot of material because we were just reading notes. But as always, the Azan Azan text is so rich and layered that even the notations to Azan text provide the kind of grist for the conversational mill that you just don't get with uh, with any other literary. Uh, any other literary figure, which is one of the reasons why, of course, we we appreciate him and his work so much. Um, Ronnie, did you want to? Ha- did you have any closing comments before we end this uh, this first bonus interseason episode? Well, I enjoyed this because I learned a lot, both uh, with Zahn's intentions with the text and like stuff that was not explicated by the text itself, such as. What the hell is with the Nogri? And uh, <laughs> why is Joris Kabath just looking like a uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi ripoff? Yeah, yeah. The fact that there were six versions of Obi-Wan Kenobi ripoff, I think, is very telling. And this is the one we ended up with. I think that's very funny. But yeah, you're right. We got a, we got a, a lot of insight. and uh, Got a lot of yeah. insight into how LucasArts works. Yeah, they're Lucas basically film, a, whatever. Uh, yeah, Lu- Lucasfilm Limited, uh, LFL was how he he uh, abbreviated it. Um, but yeah, yeah, we so, did so we did, much was did... so much was cordoned off so George could ruin it himself. <laughs> Look, it's his baby. It's his it's his project. He gets to ruin it the way he wants to. Not not the way some 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 moron you dragged out of the Tampa Sizzler. Is gonna ruin it. That's actually that's re- actually how I've uh, come around to viewing Star Wars. Because as 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 most uh, people, I was like, ah, oh, the prequels suck. Uh, George Lucas ruined my childhood. But then I realized he has every right to do so. He uh, does. It reminds me of the anecdote a Simpsons writer told when they asked John Swartzwelder, uh, famous Simpsons writer what he would do if he had all the money in the world. And he said that he would buy the Empire State Building and he would let the Empire State Building just fall into disarray. And people would go, you can't do that. It's the Empire State Building. And then Schwarzwelder would go, no, I own the Empire State Building. So <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I accept every creator's, uh, ability to ruin their own work that's right from um from from george lucas to uh to george rr R. martin to timothy zahn who who kind of ruined his work by you know letting us peek behind the curtain a little too much with these notes uh exclusion all... would be a uh, jk rowling who's just a bigot <laughs> exactly yeah that's that's a very good point that's she's just george lucas is a, a lovable level. man child that's right. Yeah, old uh, old Joanne is just out there trying to make life harder for people who never did shit to her. So you know, fuck off, J.K. Um, You're just angry with, that with those she words. named like the Irish character like O'Carbomb or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I think I think it was Patty O'Shillelagh, something like that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it was it was uh, it, it was it was uh, it was uh, Murphy O'Troubles. 
was his name. <laughs> anyway, on that note, we're, we'll, we'll close it out on this on this bonus episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're looking forward to. Uh, we have some more. Uh, we have two more, at least two more upcoming bonus episodes. So keep an eye on the feed for those. And uh, while Ronnie and I enter our meditation chambers, uh, Admiral Thrawn like to prepare to begin Dark Force Rising, the second novel in the Thrawn trilogy. Uh, with that, uh, I would just like to close out by saying I don't care what Timothy Zahn says. That dude's name is pronounced Kabaoth. I will never in my life say the uh, the soft C. And with that, I bid you all good night. Good night. <laughs>